This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. You can find it on page 858 in the Bibles in your rows. If you'd like to follow along as I read, you can also find it printed in your bulletins. Luke, chapter 2, verse 48, 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. We are starting the new year by walking together through the early chapters in the Gospel of Luke. We got started last week by looking at Luke's preface or his introduction, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. And today we're in Luke 2, and the passage that Ryan just read to us is really interesting. It's uh, the only place in all of Scripture where we don't have Jesus as either a baby or a full-grown man. Only place in all of the Bible where we see Jesus as a boy, and so the uniqueness of this story alone makes it fascinating for us to contemplate together and to study a little bit this morning. But I also want you to know, we saw last week that everything about Luke's gospel is intentional. That is, he tells Theophilus, the, the patron, the man that he's writing this account of Jesus for, he says, I did all the research, I Uh, compiled all the information. I talked to the eyewitnesses, and now I'm putting together for you an orderly account of the life of Christ. And we know that Luke has more material than he could possibly use in this story. Same with all the gospel writers, actually. John put it this way at the end of John chapter 21. John says, now there are many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the whole world could not contain the book's that would be written. And so, like John, Luke has more material than he could possibly use, which ought to make us just then wonder, why does this story make it in? Why does this one get into his account of the life of Jesus? And the simplest way to answer that question is that there's something in here that Luke believes teaches us something about Jesus or what it means to be related to him. And so with that in mind this morning, what we're going to talk about, this this story of the boy Jesus, we're going to consider at least three things that 
this story teaches us. First, it, it, this shows us something about the growth of Jesus. Secondly, this story tells us something about the uniqueness of Jesus. And then finally, this story tells us how confusing it can be to follow Jesus. All right? So let's think about it that way this morning. All right? So first, the growth of Jesus. You know, we, in, in a church like ours that is committed to the authority of Scripture and uh, our understanding of who Jesus is, you know, we talk a lot about the divinity of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus claimed to be God, that the Bible teaches that he is God. But part of the mystery of the incarnation, to use that theological term, is that Jesus also is fully human. Here's how Kent Hughes puts it. He says, the great historic doctrine of the church is that the Son of God became a real man, not just someone who only appeared to be a man. When he was born, God the Son placed the exercise of his all-powerfulness and all-presence and all-knowingness under the direction of God the Father. He did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise in his life to the Father's discretion. Though Jesus was sinless, he had a real human body, mind, and emotions, complete with their inherent weaknesses. The story shows us something of the humanity of Jesus. So just as we're getting into it, first a little context here so we know where we're going. Verse 41 tells us the reason that they go up to Jerusalem is for the feast of the Passover. And it's worth noting the Passover actually bookends the Gospel of Luke. Here at the beginning, Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, but at the very end uh, of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is back in Jerusalem for the Passover. He celebrates it with his disciples the night before he's killed. So every year they would go up to the temple for the Passover. All kinds of people would go up to the temple. Jerusalem would swell to eight to ten times its normal size during the season, and, uh, and, and people would come from all over the country. <clears throat> now this would have been a special year, for Jesus and for Mary and Joseph by extension as well, because verse 42 says that Jesus was 12 years old. In those days, when a boy turned 13, he became a man. Think of the modern, you know, uh, bar mitzvah ceremony. And uh, so then, you know, at turning 13, you would get more responsibilities, adult responsibilities in society and in family. You'd be apprenticed to a trade of some kind. In Jesus' case, it would have been carpentry. That was at 13. But at 12, there would be some preparation for this. There would have been an intense mentoring, especially by the father. And so the early readers of the story would have known this was not an ordinary trip up to the Passover for Jesus. This would have been unique. This would have been special. Joseph would have been walking Jesus through Jerusalem, giving him special instructions. Jesus, this is what the temple is. This is why we go to the temple. This is what the Passover is all about. This is why we tell this story over and over again. This is what the lamb means. This is what our faith means. This is what it means to be set apart as the people of God. Well, verse 43, Passover is done, and they start the journey home. But Jesus, we're told, stays behind, unbeknownst to Mary and Joseph. And it's a full day, they say, before they realize that Jesus is God. Now, this story has always been perplexing to me. I could never understand how could Jesus disappear for a day before Mary and Joseph understood this. I never understood this story until I saw Home Alone. And then it made perfect sense to me. Some of you remember 
it just maybe you've even seen that movie recently, right? The huge McAllister family is heading off on their trip to, what, Paris, I think is where they're going. And, uh, you know, the extended family is there, and it's the house is absolute chaos the night before the morning of the trip. The power goes out. They oversleep their alarms. There's cars coming, multiple cars to take everybody to the airport. And uh, everybody thinks that Kevin is with somebody else, and they're on the plane before they realize Kevin was asleep on the third floor and left to fight off the burglars by himself, right, at home. Now, truly, the McAllisters were not model parents in that movie, okay? I'm not saying that. But in Mary and Joseph's case, this is even more understandable. You have to remember how different their society was than ours. Families lived in very close webs of relationship in those days. In some sense, the children were raised by all the adults in the family. Maybe you could even say all the adults in the village And so they're journeying back home uh, from Jerusalem, back to home in a huge caravan. So think of uh, like those, uh, you know, covered wagon caravans you've heard about in American history, stretched out over long, uh, long distances. And so it would not have been unusual at all to see groups of kids gathered together at some point in the caravan while adults in another place. This is, you know, truly free-range parenting. Uh, But they journey, it says, a whole day before they realize that Jesus is not anywhere to be found in the caravan. Then it takes a whole nother day to get back to Jerusalem. You can imagine how worried they are, Mary and Joseph, by this point. And then it takes a whole nother day in Jerusalem, retracing their steps, where they stayed, where they ate, who they knew, and so on, before they find him. Finally, after three days in total, it says, verse 46 and 47, they find Jesus in the temple. It says, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. And it says, those teachers were astounded at Jesus' understanding, at his answers. They'd never seen a 12-year-old interact with religious scholars like this. Now, that's some context for you, hopefully, to understand the story. But I still here we're talking about the humanity of Jesus. And the key verse is verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Do you hear that? He increased. He grew. He developed. It's sometimes easy to miss this, right? We emphasize rightly the divinity of Jesus Christ. But if you're not careful, you can forget or miss altogether the humanity of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the incarnation is that God became fully human. That means Jesus had a human mind as well as a human body. It's not that Jesus had the mind of God just simply sort of stored into or stuffed into a human body. That's actually an ancient heresy called Apollinarianism, which, you know, I don't, don't try to impress anybody at a party saying, you know, I learned at church this week about Apollinarianism. You know, it's not going to impress anyone. Believe me, I've tried. It just doesn't work. But, but here's the point. <clears throat> Jesus was fully God and fully man, which means he was subject to the ordinary laws of human development. He grew in wisdom, verse 52. He learned things that he did not know before. John Calvin put it this way. He said, there is no impropriety in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant of something in respect of his perception as a man. 
And as you go through the Gospels, we do see Jesus at times with supernatural knowledge, but it's always, you know, the text is always pointing to the fact that those things had been revealed to him by the Father, much like the Holy Spirit did with the prophets. Just Jesus gets more of this revelation because of his perfect and unbroken fellowship with both the Spirit and the Father. And so what we actually see here in this story is Jesus as the real human. Jesus as the unfallen man. Jesus is what Adam should have been. It's what we could have been. In Jesus, we see the development of a person unhindered by sin and depravity. Now, if that's true, right, if Jesus is the real human, the unfallen man, what do we learn from him here in this story? Real quick, I'll just mention a couple of things. First, just note that Jesus showed up. Jesus showed up to the important things that marked him off as belonging to the people of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And listen, there was nothing convenient about going up to Jerusalem year after year for the Passover celebration, but Mary and Joseph did it, right? With all the inconvenience, with all the hardship, with all the difficulty, with all the financial outplay that would even be to make this journey They would do it, and Jesus follows suit. And similarly, we should not give up meeting together as well. We should prioritize not just our spiritual beliefs, but our spiritual habits and our spiritual practices. And this includes our commitment to corporate worship and being with the people of God. Jesus showed up. But then secondly, just note, Jesus desired to learn. We see here in the story a boy, a young man, who's hungry for knowledge. He's growing in wisdom. He listened to the teachers. He asked good questions, and we should imitate him in this. Third, Jesus' relationship with God affected his relationships with others. Verse 52 says, he grew in favor with God and man. That is, you cannot claim a deep relationship with God without it also manifesting in your relationship with other people. Again, look at Jesus in the story. He humbly listens and interacts with the scholars at the temple. Talk about the fright that he gives Mary and Joseph in a moment. But notice also in verse 51, it says, he went down with his parents and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. We cannot claim a deep and growing relationship with God without a deep and growing love for our neighbors, love for our family, love for the other people that God puts into our lives. So we're talking about the growth of Jesus here. But secondly, this story gives us something of the uniqueness of Jesus. In verse 48, Mary scolds or rebukes Jesus after they find him. She says, why have you treated us so? Your father and I have been searching for you, and never has a more authentic line of dialogue been written than this one, from a mother scolding a child. Your father and I, right? Like, how many times has a mother said something like that to their, your father and I, right? And and here's what Mary's saying. She's saying, Jesus, Joseph has been walking you around Jerusalem all week long. Jesus, your father has been spending all this extra time with you. Jesus, how dare you dishonor your father this week of all weeks? And what's Jesus' response? He says, Mom, I am honoring my father. You're just not seeing the whole picture. Verse 49, he said to them, 
Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or as the King James translates it, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Mom, I am honoring my father. And here we see Jesus' claim to a unique relationship with God. Maybe that's a little bit difficult to puzzle out right away or to to notice right away, but but only so because of how much Christianity has affected the general consciousness of our culture. Uh, The idea that we are God's children, the idea that we can relate to him as a loving father seems very normal in the way we speak about it. Even if you haven't experienced that uh, specifically, the, the language is not unfamiliar. But in the ancient world, this was not a normal way to think about a relationship with God. In fact, that's part of the reason for Mary and Joseph's confusion in verse 50. Remember, Jesus says, um, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And it says, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And if you go back to the Old Testament, very seldom is God referred to as a father. And even then, when he was referred to as a father, it was God as the father or the source of the whole nation of Israel. You didn't see in the Old Testament, even among the patriarchs, even among the prophets, even among those closest to God, you don't see someone personally addressing God as their father. This was way too intimate, way too familiar, way too personal. Here's Jesus, 12 years old, claiming a kind of intimacy with God that would have been unfathomable, even to the folks closest to God in the Old Testament scriptures. And as his life goes on, Jesus says that others too can come into this same kind of relationship. They too can experience God as a father through him, through his work. Jesus claims a unique relationship with God. And we said the story is about his humanity, but here we get at least a glimpse of his divinity as well. But secondly here, we see that Jesus, not only does he claim a unique relationship with God, Jesus is on a unique mission, a mission from which he won't be deterred. Do you notice there that he said, he said to Mary, he said, I must be in my father's house. And there's a little Greek word there that's translated must. It's actually the word for necessity. That is, this had to happen. There's no other way. It was necessary for things to be this way. My friend Ray Kanata points out that this same word for must or necessity, it comes up at the very end of the Gospel of Luke as well. In Luke chapter 24, uh, and we talked about this story a little bit last week too, there are some confused disciples on the Emmaus Road. They too have lost Jesus and at first, they, they encounter him. They think it's some stranger on the road. They don't recognize Jesus. They're not expecting a resurrection after all. And so they're talking to this man, and Jesus says to them, you know, what are you talking about? And they say, well, we, we, we lost Jesus. We thought he was going to be the savior of the world, but obviously he wasn't. He was crucified. And very calmly, the stranger says to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? And that's the same word translated must in our passage. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus is on a mission and he won't be deterred. He has to be about his father's business. Luke 24, the disciples are frantic. We've lost Jesus. Three days later, very calm, he encounters them and says, don't you see that I had to do this? 
In our passage, Mary and Joseph, frantic. We've lost Jesus. Three days later, very calm. He says, don't you see that I had to do this? I have a plan of salvation. I'm going to follow it through. And Tim Keller suggests that this really is the backdrop to this whole story. We talked about Joseph walking Jesus around Jerusalem, explaining to him about the temple and the Passover. Joseph is walking Jesus around, but also in the backdrop of all this is God the Father walking Jesus around. Joseph is going around saying, Jesus, you're going to be a carpenter. You're you're going to be a faithful Jew. You're going to go to the temple. You're going to celebrate the Passover, and this is what all that means. God the Father is also walking Jesus through Jerusalem, and what he's saying is a million times deeper. He says, Jesus, you're going to be the new temple. You're the place people are going to go to meet with God. See these streets in Jerusalem, Jesus? You're going to walk these streets with a cross on your back. So you'll be the savior of the world. And at the Passover meal, Jesus, you're going to be the real Passover lamb, the one whose blood will secure the rescue of all who will take shelter under it. Not just here, but throughout all of his life, Jesus is saying, I must be about my father's business. I have a plan of salvation, and I'm going to see it through. So we're talking about the growth of Jesus. This story also tells us something about the uniqueness of Jesus. And finally, there's something here to help us in understanding or at least persevering and, and, and just knowing and awareness of how confusing it can be to follow Jesus. Earlier we saw in verse 50, it says of Mary and Joseph that they did not understand the saying that he had spoken to them. But that's sort of principial. Uh, If you go back, though, a few verses to verse 48, the confusion is much more personal. You know, it's one thing to say, I don't understand this thing about Jesus, right? A kind of a conceptual miss, a theoretical uh, difficulty. But it's another thing altogether to give your life to Jesus, to shape your life around Jesus, to follow him as a disciple, and then to feel what Mary feels in verse 48. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? And if I were a betting man, I'd wager that sometime this year, you're going to say, or at least you're might think, Jesus, why are you treating me so? Jesus, why have you treated me so? Some of you are in the thick of that right now, in fact. And the reason I bring this up is there's a tendency to think, okay, I'm going to give my life to Christ, and then he's going to answer all my prayers, and he's going to bless me, and work's going to go well, and my kids are going to turn out great, and nobody's going to get sick. But very often life does not turn out that way and we're left and with Mary thinking, Jesus, why have you treated us so? Elizabeth Elliot uh, wrote a novel called No Graven Image. She wrote a lot of books, but I think to my knowledge, this is her only work of fiction, No Graven Image. It's a um, story about a, a missionary woman who goes to the rainforest in Ecuador to translate the Bible into the indigenous, uh, the language of an indigenous uh, people, indigenous tribe. And the whole story is about the preparations and the going and the contact. And at the end of the story, uh, everything falls apart. 
the contact that she'd made, a person which she was engaged with with the tribe is accidentally killed, which throws everything off. She's expelled from the tribe, threatened, and uh, it's dangerous. The whole missionary endeavor, everything that they worked for, everything that they prayed for absolutely disintegrates, falls apart. And, and then the book is over. And uh, when Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, she got all kinds of angry letters from Christians saying something like, this is unbelievable, God would never treat somebody like this. God would never treat a faithful person like this. He would never let these sorts of things happen. And Elizabeth Elliot even said that a magazine told her that some Christian leaders, some pastors had lobbied to keep her book off the best books of the year list in order to ensure that fewer people would read it. Again, because of the same prevailing notion. If you really love Jesus and you really dedicate yourself to him, he won't let those sorts of things happen to you. Now the irony is, and some of you know this, that though this is fiction, this was a novel, it was pretty much based on what happened to Elizabeth Elliot in real life. She was married to Jim Elliot, one of five young missionaries to reach out to the Aka Indians in Ecuador. It's a movie about this, by the way, you can look up this week called The End of the Spear. They were killed after making contact with this unreached tribe. Things had seemed to be going so well. They were faithful people. They were trying to serve the Lord and then inexplicably, they're speared to death, killed, leaving behind wives and children. Seemingly, there's no sense to it. And people told Elizabeth Elliot, the things in your book, God would never let happen. Irony being, of course, that's precisely what happened to her in real life. So what do you do with that? Here's what she said. I dethrone him if I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my ideas. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. These early chapters in the Gospel of Luke serve as a way of preparing the reader for encountering Jesus later on in Luke's narrative. But additionally, these chapters also serve as a way of preparing the reader for encountering Jesus in the difficult and the hard places of life. Here we are at the beginning. We're reading this in the beginning of 2022. There are a lot of things we're all going to experience in this next year. These chapters are meant to prepare us for how we encounter Jesus in the midst of those things. Jesus can be confusing, maybe even especially for those who love and follow him. And I want you to know, you may very well be saying with Mary something like, Jesus, why are you treating us so? Jesus says he is about his father's business. And like Mary, we, always, we, we don't often see exactly what that is. We don't know the whole picture so we're confused and it's hard. But there is one other thing about Mary here that's worth noting. In verse 51 it says, she treasured up all these things in her heart. Following Jesus can be disturbing and scary and we won't always know what's going on because we don't always have access to what is the Father's business. To put it another way, Mary didn't know the plan but she knew the man or the boy, I guess, in this case. 
and she treasured those things in her heart. She took what she did know of Jesus, these confusing little bits of information, what she did know, and she took those away. She treasured those up in her heart so that when she encountered the difficulties and the hardship and the confusion of a plan that didn't make any sense to her, she could hold on to those things she did know about him and persevere. And I think this is helpful for us because you're not always gonna know the plan, but you can know the man. And you can know that whatever is going on, you can know that whatever difficulty or tragedy or, or awful thing that seems to have entered your life, you can know, at the very least, you can know that those things are happening not because he doesn't care. Because Jesus went to the cross for you, you know that. He died for you and rose again for you and he sits now even at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, making intercession for you. So whatever disturbing and painful and confusing thing that's happening, know this. It's not that he does not care. It's not because he doesn't love you. Because he's shown us that in the cross. And we're reminded of that even as we come to communion later this morning. We are to take these things and treasure it up in our hearts. I'll just conclude with this. Um, I have a pastor friend from Iowa his name is Wayne Larson, and he tells uh, <clears throat> a little bit of his own story like this. I'll just read to you what he said. He said, when I was 12, my mom was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, what would later be called bipolar disorder. It was like the solid ground of my world being torn from under my feet. Like almost everyone in the mid-1970s, our little church had no idea of what to do with mental illness. But what they did do was remain present in my life and show a love and care for me that really wasn't heroic or outside the ordinary. They were just always there. But looking back, I now see that these people were Jesus holding my hand through one hell of a tough time. See, Wayne, in his distress, he couldn't see the plan. He didn't know what was going on. He still doesn't know. But he had come to believe that Jesus was there in the form of God's people, in the form of the church, holding his hand through one hell of a tough time. And now, like Mary, he treasures up those things in his heart, which enables him to indeed move through even the most difficult of circumstances. We won't always know the plan. We do have the opportunity to know the man. And that even can happen for us as we treasure up in our hearts what we learn as we come to the Lord's Supper in a moment. So let's pray. And we'll come to the Lord's table together. Lord, we ask that you would use this passage, even this morning, to help us to see Jesus, to see his humanity, how he came to earth and took on flesh, truly became one of us. And also how he is absolutely committed to his rescue mission, which means, among other things, that none of us that he has called can ever be snatched out of his hand. Would you help us to treasure those things in our hearts so that when we face difficult and confusing circumstances, we can be sure of your love for us, even when we're not sure why these things are happening at all. And then would you also help us to show up for each other as tangible expressions of your compassion and care. And thinking of that and even our corporate opportunity to be together and to worship you now, we pray the words that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, friends, as we come to the table this morning, again, this is a chance to do as Mary has done, to take what we know of Jesus, particularly what he's done for you and given his life for you on the cross and treasure those things up in our hearts. This is meant to be food for your soul and it can sustain you through troubling, confusing, and scary times in life and scary things that may even be coming our way this year. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you, even I implore you to come and to celebrate the supper with us this morning. This is important stuff. This is a gift that God has given us. It's treacherous territory in 2022. And uh, this is something that's meant to, to help you make it through, as well as this whole body of pe- people who want to be present to you as well. So as we come to the supper, come treasuring in your heart what Jesus has done for you. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We will celebrate communion here this morning as we'll have two stations down here in the front. Our servers will be up here and they'll hold out to you a basket of bread. There's also, um, it's all pre-cut for you, so um, you can just take a piece of bread. If you need a gluten-free option, there'll be a separate tray uh, down here on the table to my left, to your right. Um, at both stations, there'll be individual cups of wine and juice. Uh, the wine is red, the juice is white, so you know the difference between them. Uh, once you have the elements, you can move to the sides there up front and take communion up here, and there's a place to dispose of your, uh, your cups up here in the baskets to the side, or you can go back to your seat and continue to meet with the Lord. We just ask that you take your cup with you. If you go back to your seat with you, you just dispose of it on your way out later this morning. Let's bow our heads. Let's give thanks to the Lord, and, and then we'll invite you to come and to celebrate the supper with us this morning. Would you pray with me? God, our Father, we do give thanks for these gifts of bread and wine, which point us to something so much more, point us to Christ's death on our behalf, and point us forward, of course, to the world to come where we can feast in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, as we come in faith this morning, would you make real to us your love, your care, the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, and then would you make us ready for the kingdom of God? Would you send us out in your mission as we wait? We eat and drink now, declaring that we believe in our risen Lord. We pray now in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org.
Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.